In the first century, those who read, interpreted, and applied the word of God in the synagogues were the scribes and the Pharisees, right? So the Jews, they didn't attend church, they attended synagogue. And it was the, the Pharisees and the scribes um, the, and the rabbis, those religious, the religious elites of their day that did the reading, did the interpreting, right? They had all the authority in applying the word of God. And so the Jewish people who were reared in these synagogues, they participated in the temple worship. They, they learned the Old Testament law from these teachers and from these scholars who were steeped in tradition, their, the, the tradition of their religion, of, the, of Judaism. Um, and so the role of the average everyday Jew is simply to hear what they had to say and believe what they said and just accept it. They, there was no opportunity for them to say, excuse me, uh, can you explain that? How does that actually apply uh, to what God said? There are so many things that were added onto what God had said that there was no doubting that they couldn't challenge the authority of those official teachers. And so when Jesus arrived on the scene, he begins to set the record straight. He wants them to understand. In fact, in the next sections we're going to go through, he's going to say over and over, you've heard it said, but I tell you this. He's setting the record straight. In fact, probably one of the, the greatest reasons that the Pharisees hated Jesus was because he challenged their traditions. He didn't follow all of their, uh, their man-made rules that they had added to God's word. So as we jump into this section on the Sermon on the Mount, Here's where we've come from. In the Beatitudes, we saw that Jesus taught us about the character qualities, the values of his followers. Uh, in the salt and light section that we looked at last weekend, Jesus taught us about the influence of his followers. And tonight, in this section, Jesus teaches us about the righteousness of his followers. And he does so by taking us back to the old testament back to the law and the prophets and their relation to us today let's read the text it's here on the screen follow as i read along don't think that i came to abolish the law or the prophets i did not come to abolish but to fulfill for i tell you until heaven and earth pass away not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished therefore Whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches others to do the same will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Verse 20, For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. So I ask you tonight, what do you think of the Old Testament? What do you think of the Old Testament? Which do you tend to read more? The Old Testament or the New? Is the Old Testament still important today? Some people say that you can do away with the Old Testament. Uh, you know, that the Old Testament is full of law and Jesus came to replace the law with the gospel. And yes, it's true that Jesus came preaching the gospel, but he's very clear here, as we just read and as we're going to extrapolate tonight, that that we cannot just set aside the Old Testament. In fact, if you really stop and look at it, the Old Testament, here I'm going to go to the Old Testament 
this is, here's the Old Testament Bible. This is the New Testament by my Bible. It's about three quarters of your Bible is the Old Testament. You can't just cut out three quarters of the Bible and expect to have the full picture. Uh, let me ask you a question. How do you think would be the best way to determine the value of the Old Testament? Do you think perhaps maybe we could ask Jesus? Do you think perhaps Jesus might be able to tell us how we should view the Old Testament? So we, we could ask ourselves tonight, what did he say about the Old Testament and about the law? Now, look, granted, Jesus' teachings were different from the teachers of his day. Uh, he taught with authority and he seemed to set aside their traditions. But was Jesus also setting aside the Old Testament law? So these are some questions I hope that we'll be able to answer um, tonight as we look at a Christian's righteousness and Jesus' view of the law. So here's the big idea. Here's the big idea tonight. The righteousness of Jesus' followers must surpass mere religious law-keeping. They say that you can divide up all the religions of the world into two categories, the do religions and the done religion. And basically, the, the do religions say you have to keep some rules. There are some, there are some laws. There are some things that you have to do if you are going to make it into God's heaven. We're going we're gonna to show that that is false tonight from what Jesus says here. So here's what we're going to see tonight. We're going to see the purpose of the law, the performance of the law, the permanence of the law, the problem with the law, and the perfection of Jesus. And I think it's, these are given to us here in this passage. So let's take them one at a time. First of all, the purpose of the law. What is the purpose of the law that Jesus gives us here? Well, I believe that one of the primary purposes of the law is that the law reveals my sin. Remember, this is Jesus, the law, and me. And so the law reveals to me and to you, it reveals my sin. Now, would you agree with me that everything that God does has a purpose? God does nothing purpose, uh, without purpose. Everything he does. And, and so if the law is his doing, if the message of the prophets was his doing, then God is the lawgiver, right? If God is the lawgiver, right? If Moses and the prophets didn't simply write and speak what they thought they should write and speak, they didn't, that's not what they did. The scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit inspired them what to write and speak. There are some scriptures that, are, that will be here on the screen. Uh, there you go. First, 2 Peter 1.21. No prophecy ever came by the will of man. Instead, men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? Okay. And so the Old Testament writers uh, and the prophets, they didn't just speak at whim. They didn't say whatever came to their mind. They didn't claim to find some fancy glasses and, you know, um, and some tablets and this was just going to be something that they were going to deliver. No. This was, this was the moving of God through the Holy Spirit. They were carried along as the Holy Spirit breathed on them, as the Holy Spirit gave them the words, they wrote them down. 2 Timothy, Paul wrote, All Scripture is inspired by God and is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training 
in righteousness. Notice the key word in that verse, all. All scripture. Does the, is the law included in that? Yes, it is. Are the prophets included in that? Absolutely, they are. And so there is profit in the three quarters of the Bible that come before the book of Matthew. There's great profit in it. And so the Old Testament, in its entirety, is inspired and necessary as the New Testament. Listen, if we only had the New Testament, would we understand when we get to Matthew, we start reading through Matthew, would we understand the need for the Messiah accurately? I don't think that we would. You need everything that came before it to truly understand why the Messiah came into this world, why that was absolutely so necessary. Uh, we needed the prophets to show us so that we could accurately identify who the Messiah would be. If, if it just began in Matthew, we would have no idea what we're looking for in a Messiah. But the prophets, all the, the prophecies of the Old Testament, they laid all of that out many, in many details. They laid that out. There are countless lessons that the Old Testament teaches us that are necessary for us. I'll give you just a couple examples. We're urged in the Old Testament to trust and to obey God no matter what. We are, we are urged in the New Testament, we learn that it's best to confess sin early and sincerely rather than shifting blame. We learn that as it's illustrated in the Old Testament. We learn in the Old Testament that we, uh, that we ought not toy with sin because it will find us out. We also learn that our sin is consequences, not only for ourselves, but for our loved ones. And conversely, that obeying God has rewards for us and those around us, right? So the Old Testament is entirely necessary for us living today. Now, the Apostle Paul, a man who is very well educated, in fact, a man who was a Pharisee, a man who is being groomed to, to be one of the top leaders among the Pharisees. This, this man who became a believer and wrote much of our New Testament explained the necessity of the law when it comes to our understanding of the character of God and how far we fall short of it. It's by the law that we come to understand that we are lawbreakers and that we need a savior. This is what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 7. He said, what should we say then? Is it the law? Absolutely not. He said, but I would not have known sin if it were not for the law. And so one of the great purposes of God's commands is to show us, church, how short we fall of God's holy standards. The fact that we miss the mark of God's perfection God gave us his law to convict us of our sin God gave us his law to to bring us to the end of ourselves this is hard for us today as a culture this is hard for us because we don't want to come to the end of ourselves we are encouraged to pursue self we're encouraged to go find yourself, right? We're encouraged to discover self and, and to, to make self the center of our universe. And really what we find in the Scripture 
is that we have to come to the end of ourselves, and the law helps us do that to realize that we need to look up and that we need Jesus to save us. Our innate self-righteousness is so entrenched in us, even, even in a very corrupt culture. It, 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 it's shocking at times how even very... Um, you know, if, if you're steeped at all in, in Scripture, how forward people are who live against everything moral that God has written in his word present themselves as so morally righteous. A different kind of morality, but, but a superior morality than those of us trying to live by the word of God. You see, you see, the law of God establishes for us a standard of what is right and wrong, not based on how I feel or you feel, based on what our Creator has said, based on the character of the God who created us, who breathed life into our bodies. So our culture tells us we're not sinners, but listen, God's law tells us otherwise. God didn't leave us to measuring ourselves up to our own standard of right and wrong. Our creator revealed to us what is right and wrong. So the law has a purpose. And so in Jesus in verse number 17, when he, when he, when he brings the conversation to the law and the prophets, it's important for us to understand that Jesus is acknowledging the purpose for which they exist. And he's validating the purpose for which the law and the prophets exist. Secondly, Jesus talks about the permanence of the law. And the truth here, the truth here is this. It's here on the screen. The law will survive long after me. It's going to survive long after me. Look what Jesus says, verse 18. For truly I tell you. Now listen. Whenever Jesus says, truly I tell you, this is a good time for us to stop talking or whatever we're doing, and just like listen to what Jesus, whenever Jesus says, I got something to tell you, and it's the truth. You, you want to hear what Jesus has to say. He says, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or one stroke of a letter will pass away from the law until all things are accomplished. Now, Jesus mentions here the smallest letter, and he, says, he uses this word that's interpreted in the CSB, uh, one stroke of a letter. Now, the smallest Hebrew letter, perhaps you're familiar, is the Hebrew word yod, and it looks something like an apostrophe. In the Old Testament, there are over 66,000 yods. 66,000 in the Old Testament. Uh, the word that is interpreted one stroke of a letter there is the Hebrew seraph, or it's an extended looks like an extended horn. It's a very tiny extension on some letters that distinguishes it from other letters. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, a capital E. Think of a capital E in your mind and think of a capital F. What distinguishes them? One little mark at the bottom of the line, right? There you go. That's the little mark. And there are several Hebrew letters that are that are distinguished from other letters simply by little marks. And Jesus is saying this. He's saying that not even the smallest little mark will pass away until all has been 
fulfilled. Why is that important? Why is it important to know that we could trust that the, the, the manuscripts that we have are accurate? Why is it important for us to know that, that what was written down by Moses and by the prophets that we today would have an accurate uh, a replication of that? Why is that necessary? Well, it's highly necessary, isn't it? I mean, I want to know that, that what I'm reading is what Moses wrote. I, you know, I know that he wrote in a, he didn't write it in English. I understand that. But I want to I be able to, to believe that, that what we're reading is not, wasn't something that's, you know, through the grapevine. Remember playing that when you're kids? You get, you get to, you ever do the, the, the can thing, you know, do that one? Or you get in a line. We used to do this in youth group. And you'd have the first kid tell the second kid the, some long sentence or story, and then he'd have to tell it to the third kid and then the fourth kid. And by the time it gets all the way down here to like the 10th kid, you have a story that is nothing like what it began as. Well, can you imagine over a couple thousand years how the story could change if, there, if the Jews weren't so consumed uh, about making sure that the Scripture was replicated accurately? Well, what Jesus is saying here is that God made sure that his word would be preserved from generation to generation so that even till this day and until it's all fulfilled, we can be sure that we have accurately what God has given to us. So when someone comes and knocks at your door and says, hey, listen, uh, have you read this book? Because the Bible you're reading is, it's been corrupted and you need this book to help you understand that book. All you have to say is, you know what, I've read Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 18, so I'm just going to have to thank you, but not, you know, thank you, say thank you, but no thank you, right? Why? Because Jesus guaranteed for us that his word would be preserved. He said, not one of the 66,000 plus yods or innumerable little seraphs will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. What does that mean? Every promise, every prophecy, every judgment, every blessing of the word will be fulfilled. Every one of them. Every one of them will be fulfilled in the minutest detail. Every little detail will be fulfilled, church. This should give us great confidence in what we have. It's the word of God today. Um, Rod Mattoon, in his, one of his commentaries, he, he writes about how that 16th century children fairy tale stories, they've changed. Did you know this? I, I, did, I was not aware. I have kids. I've seen plenty of fairy tale movies and stories and books in my day. But, but uh, I guess they were a lot more violent back when they were originally written. Maybe you knew this. Um, they weren't innocent. And what they say is that kids were hardened by the circumstances that they faced every day back in those days. Uh, they were exposed to filthy, vulgar language. Um, due to the lack of privacy in their crowded homes, they were exposed to nudity and sex. They witnessed drunkenness. They drank liquor themselves, oftentimes at an early age. 
of violence, cruelty, and death were no strangers to them as they witnessed public hangings and beheadings in public squares. It wasn't a good time to raise a kid. And the harshness of those times were reflected in the, in, in the children's stories. Um, the original version of Sleeping Beauty. Have you seen it? Sleeping Beauty, right? Have you seen the Disney version? Okay, all right. Now, even Disney versions are changing nowadays, and I don't even get me started on that. But, but the original Sleeping Beauty, listen, he says, does not end happily once the prince is awakened with a, uh, the princess is awakened with her kiss, right? With, with the prince's kiss. Her troubles just begin. She's raped, abandoned, and her illegitimate twin children are threatened with cannibalism. Imagine staying up late and watching that one with your kids. <laughs> In the authentic version of Little Red Riding Hood, the wolf has yet to digest the grandmother when he pounces on Red, ripping her to pieces from limb to limb. And another, I'm sorry, I'm laughing. It's just, it's comical that they would tell these stories to kids. But, but in another version, the wolf collects the grandmother's blood in bottles and induces, induces the unsuspecting Red to drink it. All right, so look, fairy tales change. They change. But Jesus makes it clear, his word will not pass away. It will not change. Jesus is teaching us something. He's teaching us the inspiration of Scripture, the Old Testament included. He's teaching us the immutability of the Scripture. This is all because our God is an immutable God. Peter wrote this, uh, 1 Peter 1. He said, you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and its glory like a flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Endures forever. No book has been more attacked than the Bible, and yet no book has survived so well as the Bible. Have you heard about Voltaire, you know, that, that French philosopher? He hated Christianity, hated it with a passion. And so he set out to destroy Christianity. He said it took 12 men to start Christianity. I'm, I'm like, time out, it was actually Jesus, it was one. But okay, 12, you're saying the disciples. He said it took 12 men to start Christianity, but it will only take one man to destroy it. And I will be that man, Voltaire said. Okay? He claimed that within a hundred years, you wouldn't be able to find a copy of the scripture except in museums. Well, a century passed. The word of God was thriving and Voltaire was dead. Ironically, Voltaire's own house was later used by the Geneva Bible Institute to store scriptures. Isn't that ironic, you know? God gets the last laugh, I guess, but Jesus was right, church. Jesus was right, and Voltaire was wrong. God's word will endure forever. Today, God's word is the best-selling book. Go to, go to the New York Times bestseller list. You won't find, you won't find the Bible on any, anywhere on any best-selling list, but it is the best-selling book. They just refuse to put it on any of those lists. Over 100 million copies of the Bible are printed every year. Billions of copies are in circulation in hundreds of languages. The annual sales 
uh, figures for the Bible are so high, averaging between $425 million and $650 million repeatedly year after year, which dwarfs the sales of, of all other books. And so there's not even a close second to the, 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 the what's the word, the, the, just how far wide reaching the influence of the word of God extends around the world. Why is that? Well, it's because it's God's book. God wants to get his word out, and God's protected his word. And, and so when people show up or they tell you, look, the Bible's just a bunch of man-made things, written by a bunch of men, listen, know what the facts are. Know what the truth is. Go to what Jesus has said and know that the Scripture is reliable. Look, you can, you can count on this, that God's word is going to survive whatever attacks are thrown at it. So, so there's the permanence of the word. Then Jesus talks about in verse 19, the performance of the law. And here's the, the, the truth here. Obedience to the law is serious. So God's given us his word. It's, it, his, his word is given to show us that we're sinners. It's going to survive. So it's not like we can outlive it somehow get by like like it's going to somehow go away and i'm just gonna be able to live beyond it you know and somehow i'll be able to do what i want at some point because god's word will will stop being god's word or it'll kind of die off no it's going to survive long after me so what does jesus say he says obeying the word of god obeying it is really serious look what he says Whoever breaks one of the least of these commands. You know, the Jews had this habit of classifying the various commands as greater or less. If you go in Matthew, if you turn over a couple of pages of chapter 22 and verse 36, excuse me, one of the Pharisees asked Jesus. He comes to him and says, teacher, what command is the greatest of all? Right? He's, at, he's at exactly what Jesus is getting at here. He wanted to know which one? Why? He wanted to know which, which is the one I really have to concentrate on obeying. Now, Jesus does here recognize that some commandments are less important than others. Right? You, you, can, re, you can see that very clearly in what Jesus expresses here. But he's not declaring some commandments to be unimportant. He's just saying that there, there are some commandments. In fact, when he answered that Pharisee, what did he say? The first commandment is what? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, right? And then the second is what? To love your neighbor as yourself. And you can sum up, those, that's a summary of the Ten Commandments, right? But the point here is that Jesus... Jesus is declaring, yeah, there are ethical duties that are weightier than others, but it's still bad to do wrong. It's, it's never right to do wrong. It's never right to break a commandment, even the least one, even the one that seems like, oh, what's the big deal? Come on, it's 2024. What's the big deal, man? Come on. Hey, it don't matter. God's commandments are still God's commandments. And I, I'm afraid that when we start looking at God's word, like, which ones can I, 
can I get by with? Which ones aren't that big of a deal today? I think we're missing the whole picture. I think we're missing the reality of who's given his law and why he's given to us and the fact that it's the inspired word of God. And whether I like God's commands or not, it's still God's commands and he's still the creator and he's still the judge that you and I are going to have to stand before one day and give an account. Christ warns us, all who break and teach others to break the law will be held accountable for that. Uh, The Greek word here, break, is the same word that Jesus uses in verse 17 that's translated destroys. As he says, I didn't come to destroy the law. It's the same same word, and it, it signifies to loose as applied to our action in regard to a law. It means to loose the obligation of the law by acting contrary to it. In in English, we call it what? Breaking the law. That's what we call it, right? So breaking and doing here, when it speaks of the law, breaking and doing the law, it carries this idea of continuous action. Continuously breaking the law and teaching other people to do so carries some trouble for us. No person is perfectly obedient all the time, right? Every one of us fails sometime. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All you have to do is start going through the Ten Commandments. And it's not really hard, if, we, if we're honest, to look in the mirror and say, you know what? I've broken a good number of them. Oh, but it's just a lie. Don't bear false witness. It's just, it's, well, still one of the commandments. For whatever reason, we thought we were justified in telling the lie Sin is, it's sin. I understand we don't lock people up for anger. I understand that. We lock them up for murder, and Jesus is going to put those together here in the next section. But, but God's law is the law, and we should always hold the law of God with high regard and understand the necessity of obeying God's word and have that our approach to Scripture rather than What don't I have to do? What can I get by with? We should never take our sin lightly. We should never think our sin is not that bad. We should never compare our sin to other sins that we deem much worse. We do that, don't we? We can find the the worst of humanity. Think, well, I'm pretty good. I mean, look at what that guy did. <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't do that. Isn't it amazing? You've heard this, that how even in, you know, you go to the state penitentiary and there's even like, there are some, there are some guys in there that are the wor- they're worse, you know? Uh, and they can get shanked just for whatever their crime was. And we do, we tend to do the same thing to some degree, just as it's human nature. We tend to think of ourselves as not that bad of a sinner because of who we can, we can spot and say, well, they're worse than I am. Listen, what Jesus is doing here is he's saying, look, the law has purpose. It has importance. And rather than 
trying to figure out how you can break the law. We should be focused on doing the law and teaching others to obey God's word. Jesus said this in Luke 11, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. James wrote, be doers of the word and not hearers only. But, but wait a minute, pastor. What about all those Old Testament laws? I mean, the elephant in the room. I mean, what about all those Old Testament laws like eating pork? Are you telling me we can't eat pork? Are you telling me we can't? We have to observe the feasts and observe the, the, the Sabbath. And are we supposed to be offering animal sacrifices? What about putting a child to death if they curse their parents? Let's bring that one back. You know, why aren't we doing that, Pastor? You know, the Bible makes clear that there are different types of laws in the Old Testament. Three scholar, theologians and Bible scholars have really categorized them in these three groups. First of all, there are ceremonial laws. And, and those included uh, the priestly duties, the sacrificial regulations, the dietary restrictions, circumcision, a bunch of things that you could hang under the ceremonial laws. Then there were the governmental laws that were specific to the theocracy under which the people of Israel lived. There were specific laws that were for them as a nation. And scripture is clear that as Christians, we're not required to follow those Old Testament rules about these things, like crimes and, and, and punishments, warfare, slavery, diet, circumcision, animal sacrifice, feast days, Sabbath observance, ritual cleansings, and so on. Jesus fulfilled those laws. And he put them to an end. This is what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. We'll bring that up on the screen for you. Uh, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility in his flesh. He made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations. Okay? And so these ceremonial and governmental laws were fulfilled in Christ and thereby they were Put aside. However, there are also, there's also this third category of laws in the Old Testament. We call them moral laws. Now, the moral laws are found throughout the Bible. They're found, they're repeated. Jesus repeats nine of the ten, uh, ten commandments in the New Testament. So we find these laws in both Testaments. The ten commandments really make up the nucleus of God's moral Law And as Christians, we still look to the Old Testament Scripture for moral and spiritual guidance. But whenever there's a conflict between the Old and New Testament laws or principles, we follow the New Testament. I hope that makes sense. Now, that said, freedom from such Old Testament laws is not a license for us as Christians to relax God's moral standards. And this is what I see happening in churches around. I'm not... I'm not saying right here around us, I'm just saying in the nation around the world, just accepting all sorts of immorality that is clearly immorality in the Bible. And, you know, I, I understand that churches are caving into that, but as long as I'm the pastor here, we're not going to cave into that stuff. Why? Because God's moral law still stands. And I think that we do a disservice to our community and to those who need Christ if we somehow lessen God's moral law to somehow accommodate the culture. Does that mean we need to be ugly with people? You bet. No, no, sir. You better believe we ought not be that way. 
It means that we still treat people with love and respect, but we stand by the moral law of God. That's, where the, that's the stand of this guy as, the, as a pastor of this church and as you know, the leader of this church. This is the direction that I intend to lead us as a body, that we are going to continue to honor the moral law of God. Here's the fourth point, and that is the problem with the law. Verse number 20. Here's the truth. The law can't save me. It can't save me. For I tell you, Jesus says in verse 20, unless your righteousness surpasses, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. You know, these Pharisees, they were admired for their careful adherence to the law. Man, they worked really hard to keep so many, so many rules. They had added 600 and some rules beyond the commandments of God that, that they, they required. Uh, Sabbath-type restrictions and, and other dietary things. I mean, it was, it, was a, it was a mess. It got to the point where the Sabbath day was like the worst day of the week. You know what I mean? Like there are so many restrictions and things you couldn't couldn't do. And, and Jesus showed up. He's like, yeah, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You know? So this was made for man, not the day for, the, the day wasn't made, how'd it, how'd it go? Man wasn't made for the day, the day was made for the man. Did I get that straight? Okay. Um, but these Pharisees, man, they, they observed these laws so strictly and, and people looked to them. They, they believed that these men were holy. Uh, holy and these men believed that they were holy but you know in the book of Matthew Jesus critiques them for not being so holy in Matthew chapter 23 here on the screen Jesus says to them woe to you scribes and Pharisees hypocrites you clean the outside of the cup and the dish but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence you see it you see the righteousness of the Pharisees was external it was outward it was a show they were good at keeping rules they they were good at following the law as far as what it could do to help them look spiritual righteous on the outside but jesus saw right through it and he looked at their heart and he says to them, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. This is verse 27. You, you hypocrites, you are like whitewashed tombs. Think about what a tomb is. Right? Holds a dead body. He's saying, you're, You look good on the outside, but you're dead on the inside, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. You, 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 see, what, you see what he's saying here? Very religious, and yet very impure. You see the problem with the do religion kind of righteousness? You keep the rules, you do the things, you take the sacraments, you know, bing, bing, bang, bing, bang, and then you can go out and you can live like the devil Monday through Friday or Saturday, and, and then you go to confession and you confess it, and you then go back and you... It's just this vicious cycle, but it's, there's no change on the inside. 
What Jesus is saying here is that it's possible to look good on the outside and be absolutely defiled inwardly. They kept the law, but it never produced righteousness in them. No true righteousness, only self-righteousness. And the problem really wasn't the law itself. It was their faulty interpretation and application of the law. For them, the law made them proud. <laughs> I didn't walk more than 30 feet, you know, on the Sabbath. I, 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 didn't, I didn't help the, the guy out of the ditch because it was a Sabbath. I left him there, you know. They felt good about themselves. When the law was meant not to make us feel proud, the law was given to humble us and to help us realize how beggarly we are, how, how much we're in need of God's grace and mercy because we've broken his laws. Jesus says the righteousness of his followers must surpass the righteousness of those men most known for their law obedience. And, he, and he, what does he say here? He demands a righteousness that exceeds their righteousness. This ought to shock us. This ought to alert us that this righteousness is the difference between heaven and hell. You see what Jesus says? You see what he says here? He says, if your righteousness doesn't supersede the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, look what he says, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Those are sobering words. You will never get into the kingdom. Are you telling me, Pastor Dave, that those highly religious men who followed all those religious rules are not in heaven? I'll tell you this. If they died with the righteousness that they were trusting in and trying to merit with God, then it's clear what Jesus says. Jesus will be the judge. I don't have to, I don't have to stand here and tell you. I can just tell you what Jesus said. Jesus said, if that's the kind... It, if your righteousness doesn't supersede the religious rule-keeping kind of righteousness where you try to keep rules and keep the commandments and do all this stuff and earn favor with God, that's not enough. You, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, Jesus says. And yet still today, many believe that God, at the end, he's going to add up all of our good works and he's going to, like, there's this big scale. He's going to put all our good works on one side and all of our bad works on the other. And if the good outweighs the bad, then he's going to let us in. And what are those good works? Well, it's law-keeping, isn't it? It's doing whatever things we have on a list in our mind that we have to check some boxes, some things we must do to go to heaven. But this is simply a law keeping based salvation and no one please listen carefully no one gets into heaven this way no one no matter how righteous no matter how convinced a person is in their mind no matter how genuine they are in their dedication to to that sort of work-based salvation no matter how sincere no matter how genuine no matter how how dear of a person they may be, right? I mean, oftentimes we look at dear religious, dedicated people and we think, if God don't let them into heaven, nobody's going to heaven. And we're just looking at the externals, right? 
God's looking right past all that law-keeping stuff, and he's looking right at the heart. And this is what Jesus is getting at. He's saying the righteousness that supersedes, he's not saying you got to obey the laws better than they did. What he's saying is there's a righteousness that you can't get by keeping the rules, by keeping the law, because you can't keep the law because we're sinners. The law was simply meant to show us that we're sinners so that we would recognize we need a righteousness we don't have. Well, Paul wrote in Romans 3.20, For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. In Galatians 2.16, he says, We know that a person is not justified by the works of the law. It's very clear throughout Scripture. So this brings us to number five here. Number five is the perfection of the Lord. You want to know where you get this righteousness from, this superseding kind of righteousness? I'll tell you where you, where you find it. Jesus says in verse 17, Don't think that I came to abolish the law of the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Fulfill. So, look, Jesus shows up on the scene and the, what, what he's trying to express here, I'm not, he's saying, I'm not anti-law. He, he, he's not throw, he's, I'm not throwing out the law, guys. I'm not throwing out the prophets. The word abolish there means to dissolve or destroy, literally to loosen down, okay? Um, and by the way, he says the law and the prophets. And I think what he's doing there is he's just generally referring to the Old Testament. I think that's what he's, what he's doing there by using the law and the prophets. It, it, it demonstrates that he's not limiting his scope per se. Okay? But, but he didn't come to abolish it. I mean, after all, he's the author of it. Why, why would he abolish what, what he had already author what he had already given he he didn't come to abolish it he came to fulfill it he came to live it out perfectly he came to keep it and explain it fully in its original intention that's what he came to do and so jesus fulfilled the ceremonial laws he lived according to the old testament law when he as he, as he was born and, and raised in Judaism, he lived according to that law. Now, he, that's not how he got his righteousness. He was, he's the son of God, right? He was born in righteousness. But, but understand, it, it just merely showed us that he was not unrighteous. Can I say that? Is that proper English? Not unrighteous? Is that a, like a double negative thing? I don't know. You decide. But, but Jesus... The Bible tells us that he was tempted at all points as we are, but he was without sin. So what the scripture reveals to us is here that Jesus was born under the law, Galatians 4.4. In Matthew 3.15, he fulfilled all the law. And then Peter goes on to say that in him was found, there was found, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. So what is it saying? Jesus himself fulfilled 
God's word doctrinally, ethically, prophetically, and personally. He lived out its laws and interpreted its word, its words as God originally intended, and he fulfilled the prophecies and promises as predicted. He kept and taught the commandments in purity and perfection, though he didn't live up to the man-made pharisaical rules he didn't cater to their fake interpretations his righteousness was authentic it was not fake it wasn't an outward righteousness of the scribes and pharisees he was the real deal why because his righteousness listen was absolutely necessary for him to go to that cross and bear our sin It was absolutely necessary for Jesus to be impeccably righteous without sin, for him to go to the cross and bear our sin in his body. The innocent Jesus for the guilty. Me. You. We're the guilty ones. We're the ones who deserve to die. We're the ones who deserve the cross. That's us. And we just need a good, clear look in the mirror and in the law of God to recognize that we're not the good person that we think we are, that we're a sinner. When we, when we compare ourselves to the righteous holiness of the character of God and his law, we recognize that we fall short and that Jesus, the righteous one, went to the cross and took our place, died for us for our sin. This is why his righteousness was absolutely necessary. Jesus paid the penalty that we deserve for breaking his commands. Isn't that crazy? What kind of love is that? We broke his commands and he paid for it. He he took the blame for it. He paid the price when Jesus said in John 19 30 he shouted it is finished he didn't say it's finished because he was defeated somehow his death was not an accident he went there on purpose he laid down his life to pay our debt for our crimes it was by his righteousness that we are made righteous this is the, the point of all this. Jesus, the law, and me. I can't, I can't get righteous by the, obeying the law any more than the Pharisees could. What I need is I need a righteousness beyond mine because I ain't got any. I need the righteousness of Jesus. And God made a beautiful way that the righteousness of Jesus could be imputed could be credited to our account. We ain't got any, and Jesus will credit, God will credit the righteousness of Jesus to our account if we will simply humble ourselves under his law and admit, I've broken your laws, and I deserve the judgment, but I believe that your son, Jesus, died in my place. He he paid my, my deal. He took my bill, and he paid it in full on the cross. And when a person will trust in his work, his death, his burial, his resurrection, in him, God 
credits his righteousness to us. That is the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees. That is the righteousness that you and I need. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's on the screen. He made the one who did not know sin. Do you see that? He didn't know sin. To be sin for us. God made the Son on the cross take our sin. To be sin for us. He didn't know sin. He was innocent. We were guilty. He took our sin so that in him we might become, what's it say, church? The righteousness of God. There it is. That's the righteousness that supersedes, that exceeds far beyond the righteousness of any religious law-keeping. It's simply through him. And so, church, since Jesus paid it all, there is nothing more to be done. Nothing more. Salvation is not a DIY project. It's not a, even a 50-50 arrangement where you, you, know, you do your part and Jesus does his part. It's not that. Jesus has done it all. This is where the two religions, the do and the done, right? Keep the laws. Check the boxes over here on the do. You got to do this stuff if you're going to get to heaven. And then you have what Christianity, what Scripture teaches is Jesus has already done everything that you need and I need to receive the righteousness of God, to be declared righteous, knowing we're sinners. We know, we're, we know who we are. We know what we've done. But God will declare you righteous because of his Son if you will trust in him. Galatians, Paul wrote, the law then, do I have that on there? Maybe you have to go back to it. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 24, the law then was our guardian until Christ so that we could be justified by faith. It's by faith, not by works. So the law, law kind of held our hand and helped us to see that we needed him. And then Paul wrote in Galatians 2, and yet because we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ, even we ourselves have believed in Christ Jesus. This was so that we might be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no human being will be justified. What is this word justified? You keep using it, Pastor Dave. It's a churchy, it's a stained glass churchy word. It's a Bible word that simply means to be declared righteous. Declared righteous. It's, it's, God, it's God declaring a sinner to be righteous simply because of what his son did in our place. So since Jesus paid it all, there's nothing more to be done but to trust in what he did for us in our place. So I have a question for you. Have you received God's gift of salvation through the righteousness of Christ and his sacrificial death and resurrection? Have you? If not, this is your opportunity. This is your opportunity. And, and I would encourage you tonight. I don't, I don't often do this. Maybe I should more often. But I want to give you that opportunity tonight. Maybe, maybe you're here tonight and you've sensed something going on in your heart. 
I'd call that the Holy Spirit of God. Just working in your heart, saying this is what you need, this is the truth. It's Jesus, trust him. I want to give you an opportunity right now in your heart, just there at your seat, to bow your head. And could we do that all together?